The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Amos chapter 5. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. Would you join with me in prayer again? And Almighty God, it is in faith that I come to you now believing that you do exist, that you are a rewarder of those who seek you diligently. And with faith, I can have confidence, not in myself, but in you and in your son who opened that door, that access where we can come before your throne of grace. And God, you say to our heart to seek your face. And our heart says to you, Lord, your face do we seek. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ask for your attention and for ours to be captivated by yours. God, that we would be united in encountering our God this morning. We thank you for your word. You hold your name and your word above all things. And we stand under the banner of your name and we are saved by your word and we have your word to nourish our souls this morning. And so I pray the Holy Spirit, you would allow a work of grace as a vessel of mercy. Um, Please, Help, help impart um, that, that which you've placed upon my heart, that we would share it together collectively, be built up, be furthered along in this wonderful, most holy faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now more than halfway through the book of Amos already. Yeah. Picking up here, midway through chapter five, there's, there's nine chapters of the book of Amos. And would you agree that it is not an understatement to say that God is pretty upset? Okay, we've gotten a load of this now. And rightly so. You know, we, we know from God's word, even sung this morning, that he is slow to anger, you know, rich in love and slow to anger. But once he is angry, his wrath is quickly kindled. It's quickly kindled. Now the Bible teaches, and we certainly recognize that God's love lavished upon us is not determined by any merit on our part. Agape love, unconditional love. It's it's a constant, unchanging love of God that is forever secured for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can, we can rest in that and be forever safe in that truth. So now having established that, we do with our lives 
either bring God pleasure or displeasure. Love is steady, strong from God to us, but a smile or a frown we are able to place upon his face. You know, God will discipline us when we displease him, but it's always rooted in love. We know this verse, Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod, what? Hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And God himself, as our heavenly father, exemplifies this truth in which we believe and hold to and apply as parents. And the treasure we are given this morning, the treasure we are given this morning is a clear look at what is both displeasing and pleasing to God, that we may be thinking rightly as we seek to live a life pleasing to the Lord. Because that's, that's the Christian's aim, is it not? We seek to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. I mean, look at 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We are God's soldiers. He enlisted us in his great army. We seek to please him. And we will begin by first examining what is displeasing to the Lord in verses 18 through 23. For not displeasing him, and yes, that's a double negative. Stay with me. Not displeasing him naturally gives way to pleasing him. Wouldn't you agree? I hope I want to see dads and moms nodding affirmingly. Like, you better believe it. You know, a child, my child is not displeasing a loving parent. That's a delight. That is a delight. It naturally brings about the, the parent being pleased over them. And I believe it is the same as with God our Father. And there's no reading between the lines and that which he is displeased by here in the opening passage in consideration this morning, verses 18 through 23, knowing what does not please him. So, as we seek to live a life pleasing to the Lord, our first due attention in knowing that which displeases him is that of taking delight at our enemy's fall. Like, am I hearing a beep, beep, beep? Like, I think I know what you're thinking. Like, back, back up a second, Seth. Are you, did I just hear you say what I think you said? That it displeases God to rejoice at our enemy's fall? They whom we pray, along with the psalmist, mind you, to bring them to an open shame, that their evil devices turn upon their own heads, praying that he, God, may cut off the memory of them from the earth. I mean, read Psalm 109 in its entirety. It does not get any harsher than that. We do pray for our enemies, as Jesus told us to, Right? That salvation would come to them first and foremost as ourselves who also were once his enemies, but now reconciled to him by his death, by the death of his son, Jesus, that they too, that they also would be reconciled. But if they do not repent, if they do not repent, chapter 109 of Psalms along with many others 
provides strong language in how we wage war in the spiritual battles through prayer against those who oppose us. And if, if this comes to pass, if our enemy justly falls, God is displeased if we take delight over their fall. Well, perhaps you're thinking, how can that line up? How can that line up? Well, let's unpack this together because I believe, I believe they do line up according to God's word. Let's, let's look at verses 18 through 20. We're going to go through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And let's not forget, our God, right, is a mighty warrior who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The one true living God who feels indignation, how how often? Every day. He feels indignation every day. The one who, if man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his bow. He has readied his arrow to prepare for him. The one who does not repent, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. I mean, that's powerful, powerful imagery of a fierce warrior God who with his hard and great and strong sword, sated with blood. This is an Isaiah. What a picture. Sated with blood will punish, will punish the nations he is enraged against. That's our God. That's our mighty warrior. He is enraged against. God will execute his judgments in the fullness of the wrath of his fury upon those who deserve punishment deserve punishment for their acts of unrighteousness. The same punishment, mind you, that every Christian deserves that Christ took upon himself in our place. Punishment is deserved for every act of unrighteousness. That is justice. That is justice. While all along, while all along, he does not take delight in the death of of the wicked. And how do we know this? Ezekiel 33. Chapter 18 is almost verbatim. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I, the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. God, he is glorified in his judgment executed. Psalm 94, 2, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Revelation 16, 6 through 7, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given to them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The wrath of man will praise him. True and just are his judgments in executing punishment for all unrighteousness. 
though he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This would, this would be the proper God-reflecting attitude over the reprobate, those who do not repent, who do not surrender to the wonderful lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives and will be punished for their sin. The proper God-reflecting attitude is one of lamentation. It's lamentation. Ben's sermon last week had emphasis on this. Lamentation. Verse 20, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Lamentation, sadness, not to be taken delight in, for God himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is glorified in his wrath, in his judgment of them, but their death is not pleasing to him. And let's be honest. Let's be honest too. Living this out ourselves, who ought to share and reflect our Father's heart, is hard to put into practice. Am I, am I alone in this? I mean, why do you think Proverbs 24, 17 through 18 is in the Bible, right? That's why God provided this scripture. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, which we are prone to do. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. There it is. Lest he see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. I mean, this, this commandment is given because that can be hard to do. It can. When your enemy, one who has mistreated you, falsely accused you, stolen from you, cheated you, persecuted you, lied to you, physically harmed you, whom you would clearly mark as an enemy, when one such as them falls and you see justice done, for your heart not to be glad when they stumble, not to rejoice when they fall? I believe this we, we just naturally go to. I mean, I'll admit it. I feel it. And furthermore, I'm fed this by the world daily. We all are. It's plastered everywhere. everywhere. It's the air we breathe. And hear me. There is cause of rejoicing. It's absolutely there's cause of rejoicing. The matter, the matter, however, the matter is, lies in the direction it's given. It's in the direction it's given. We are to lament over the brokenness, the destruction, and the, the suffering sin causes. That is the right attitude. This reflects God's heart, lamenting over the effects of sin saddened deeply by, by what sin causes. You know, Jesus, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem at his triumphal entry. Do you remember that? He was weeping over the people's sin, their sin of blindness. They did not know the time of the visitation, that Jesus was coming, visitation of God to deliver them. They were blinded by sin. They did not rightly know that on this day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem to be crucified, they did not know the things that make for peace. It caused him to weep. That Jesus would lie down his life for his people to redeem them. That the Prince of Peace would make a way for sinners to forever have peace with God. They were blind to that. Blind to it. Blinded by sin. And Jesus weeps 
on that account, knowing the destruction that would come to the city itself and the people. Jesus wept. He wept prior to raising Lazarus from the grave, right? Though he planned four days prior and knew all along that he would raise him from the grave. I mean, wouldn't you think there'd be a restraint not to hold back celebration and jubilee about what, about ready, about what he's, uh, oh boy, about what he's ready to do? No, he wept. He wept over the hurt and the suffering the world brought about by sin. That's why he was weeping. Every human being is made in the image of God and sin is the destruction. Sin is the cause of all the evils manifested in man. This is to be lamented over. It's to be lamented over in the company, in the company of thanksgiving and praise to God for justice given. Do you see how those can share space? Celebrate, rejoice in God's justice in the company of lamenting over the effects of sin. They share space. And perhaps, perhaps a, an example will be helpful. So recently, recently a, a close Christian dear friend of mine was clearly being unjustly treated at his place of work. Clearly. And being careful not to just react to this, you know, he prayed, sought counsel, and waited to address it at a proper time. And even if he was to address it at all, okay? As time went on, the situation only compounded. (laughs) And an opportunity was given, was provided to confront it as he had peace with God to do. So, So gently and respectfully, The injustice was called out with irrefutable, supportive facts, mind you. And yet, yet no just corrective action was taken. Things were left undone. Injustice remained. At which point, my friend just left it in the Lord's hands left it in the Lord's hands and didn't pursue the matter any further. But the Lord did. The Lord pursued it. And through providential means, God made things right with added measure of insult in a way that was very ironic, completely ironic. The very word used to describe the outcome of the ordeal. And I tell you, as accurate as that word ironic was to describe what resulted in justice being served, I had welling up within me an attitude of serves them right. Yeah, sweet justice. They got what they deserved. Like that was just like ready to burst out, okay? And I got a sense that the same temptation of similar thoughts were actually or actively resisted on the part of my friend, just like keeping them at bay. And that's what he did. In obedience to God's word, he kept them at bay. He did not go beyond acknowledging the irony of it and giving thanks to God and praise to God for it, that justice was done. And in the company of this, there was, this, there was just a sadness we shared, 
a sadness we shared. Even, I can't remember if there was a few words spoken or just none at all, but nevertheless, it was very clear. A sadness shared over the individual's selfishness and resulting damaging effects brought about by unrepentant sin. It'll do it every time. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is glorified in his wrath, in his judgment of them, but it is not pleasing to him. He makes this very clear. And therefore he is angry. He is angry with his people who have this, they have this attitude of taking delight in that day. That's what's going on here that day in which God will execute his judgments in the fullness of the wrath of his fury. The Israelites were looking upon this as a, as a festal occasion, okay? This, this wasn't even a cavalier attitude showing an, an arrogant dismissiveness towards the suffering of others to come, which is, which is bad enough to have that. No, they looked at it as a time to be out and about with festive animation. Like, woohoo! Get them, God! Get them! Cut them off! That was their mindset. That was their attitude. They were far, far from God's instruction through the prophet Isaiah, who says in chapter 26, verse 9, he says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. That's God's instruction. They were far from this, far from this. I mean, God says, for added emphasis, he says it twice, right? In the opening verse in 18, and then he repeats it nearly verbatim in verse 20. It is, it is not the day, excuse me, is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light and gloom with no brightness in it. It's not a festive occasion. It is one of great sadness. It is dreadful. It is a horror. The Israelites were looking at it through rose-colored glasses, tinted that way by their own self-delusion. You tracking? Their own self-delusion. And God makes plain to them what that delusion, that self-delusion is in verse 19. They had a deluded confidence that they were safe and secure to escape God's judgment. I mean, look at verse 19 again. As if a man fled, that's past tense, right? past tense, fled, successfully eluded, escaped a lion, and a bear met him. You know, he thought he escaped the terror of a lion only to be met with it, with that same terror by a bear. There's no escape that's been had. Or he went into the house, which, which I take as his own house here. He went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Now let's consider this, okay? Because arguably the most earthly secure place you have is your house, right? That's, that's your sanctuary. 
your sanctuary after the day's toils, you know, bearing the, bearing the weight of the day's troubles in full measure. You come into your home, your abode to finally relax, safe and secure to decompress. You lean your hand against the wall, which you've done countless times. <laughs> then, bam, a snake bites you. I mean, it's like, what? Come on. Like, seriously, this, this shouldn't happen. Not in my home. What God is making abundantly clear to them is this. You are not safe. You are not safe. You are not secure. You will not escape my judgment. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is warning them of this attitude they have concerning the day of the Lord. A warning we can take the heart as we consider the day of judgment coming and consider how we may not be of those who shrink back at his coming. Okay? I don't want to be those. So we got to ask. We got to ask, what led to this desire they had for the day of the Lord? What led to this desire, this attitude they had, which God so sternly warns against? It would do us well to know for ourselves that we may not repeat the error. Well, verses 21 and 23 provide that answer. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Now, this is, we'll stop there. This is not quite the expression of the hate the Grinch had over the Who's of Whoville when he's standing on the top of Mount Crepit, going through each Who alphabetically, right? Aardvarki and Nebuchadnezzar Who? I hate you! Arabi Benchin Who? I hate you. Hate, 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 double hate. Loathe entirely. Okay? It's not that sort of expression. But, but it is similar hatred in its intensity. Okay? In its intensity. And one of a much more serious matter that God directs toward the outward show of religion. It was all ritual. It was all a show, heartless acts of worship, not real. It was fake. It was fake. Psalm 147, 11. 78, chapter 78, verse 3. They did not fear him. There was no fear of God in them. Their hearts were not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. The reason... The reason they are of the wrong mindset that they were going to escape the coming judgment and felt securely secure or felt safely secure before God is that they had their religious practices down solid. You know, their, their feasts, offerings, solemn assemblies, songs, beautifully sung, outwardly, having this believing portrayal, this believing portrayal, but that they were in a right standing before God. 
but reality, reality was of a completely different take. Observe, as, as Ben noted a couple weeks ago, there's, there's no sin offering, okay? It's not mentioned by any specific means at all. No sin offering. They're blind to, to sin. And notice in verse 22, first, God doesn't accept them. He doesn't accept the offerings that are given. And then he won't even look upon them. It's like escalating abhorrence, escalating further. In verse 23, when he mentions the songs, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Psalm 147 says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. But only if it's real. Only if it's real and from the heart. If not, God says, take them away from me. Take them away. You know, all of this is escalating abhorrence. Being betrayed by God is to signify the measure of displeasure he has with superficial religion. With fake faith. He abhors it. He hates it. God looks upon the heart. Christians, we know this. God looks upon the heart. We may, we may fool man. We may fool our neighbor, our coworker, our, our, our spouse, our parent, our, our sibling. We may even fool our brother or sister in Christ. And we could fool everybody. But we will not fool God. We will not fool God. Outward religion, apart from inward realities of the life of Christ ruling your heart, is an abhorrence to him. He hates it. He despises it. Such a state is tremendously dangerous and that it leads to this self-delusion that all is fine between you and God when it is not. The prophet Isaiah puts it like this. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. An attitude completely blind to operating contrary to God's heart who rejoices in justice in the company of lamenting over the effects of sin, first and foremost, which should be our own sin. First and foremost, God gives shivering warning that we are to heed. Take, take in deep these warnings of that which displeases the Lord, that we may not bring a frown upon his face, but rather a smile. However, if we are guilty, if we are guilty of any fake outward shows of Christianity, while void of inward realities of a heart engaged, or guilty of any sin, for that matter, that grieves him, be encouraged to know, be encouraged to know that any frown upon his face 
can quickly be turned upside down by repentance. By repentance. Turning God's frown upside down by repentance. Take a look with me at the continuation, the continuation, mind you, of the, of the Ezekiel passage we read earlier. We'll read it again. It picks up in verse 11, if you're there, 11 through 14. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now watch this. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Hear the plead there from God. Why will you die again? Though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die yet. Yet, if he turns from his sin, that's repentance. If he turns from his sin, if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is glorified in his wrath, in his judgment of them, but it is not pleasing to them. He makes this very clear. Well, that which is pleasing is repentance. Repentance. You could say it like this, dying to self. That's another concise way to say repentance. Just dying to self. And in harmony with that, is also the death of his saints. Have you guys captured that verse or caught that verse in scripture? Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. Why is this? Why is this? Because both, both dying to self, repentance, dying to self, and the death of his saint both result in being with God. With God, being in fellowship. Listen, repentance, repentance, re, repentance returns us to a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And death is the doorway to being with him, entering his, his kingdom. You know, our job is done. His child has come home. The earthly sojourn has reached its end. Its end. They enter the, the rest from all their labor and toil. You know, striving against sin, fighting the fight of faith. A song we recently sung here has such lyrics. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. God delights to his kids home as they pass from this life into glory. We see in scripture that Jesus himself stands, right? There's a very vivid picture of this with the martyrdom of Stephen. He who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he stands to welcome us into his kingdom. What a beautiful, true picture. That's not, that's not just there for, for flair. I believe that happens. He stands to welcome us in. He delights. It is precious to welcome his child home. 
And as we move on to our second point and knowing what pleases God, that's our second point. In verse 24, we begin with repentance. We begin with repentance. We seek, you seek if you seek to live a life pleasing to the Lord, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In fact, you could say the authenticity of one's faith is marked by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you hear what I said? Authenticity of one's faith is marked by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That, that practicing repentance is a habitual part of your life. There's conviction over sin. It's, that's got to be there. Conviction over sin. There's confessing sin, turning away from sin and turning towards God. Repentance. This pleases God. Walking with him daily with this mindset, it, it puts a smile upon his faith, face that is looking upon you with favor. Isaiah 30, verse 15, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The prophet Isaiah says, in essence, like church, dear brother, don't be unwilling. Don't be unwilling. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance for this pleases the Lord and by which you shall be saved. Do not be unwilling. Give yourself to this. Ask God. Ask God for, and not just if you're a a baby Christian or a seasoned Christian. This is a regular prayer. Ask God for a penitent heart that is quick to repent. Because you could be there for a time and then just get hard. Ask for that daily. To be quick to repent. For for if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He is not pleased and will fiercely judge you accordingly. Repentance pleases God and right in rhythm with that is verse 24. Let's go ahead and read that. Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Like an ever-flowing stream. Let's try to get our, some pictures going in our head, okay? Starting with, isn't that just inviting? Like a flowing water, just a natural, not nat- well, obviously natural, but a river. Thinking about this, three things came to mind. So whether it be similar to Caleb Dehart, he came to mind, eyeballing some choice fishing holes in a flowing river. It's inviting. He's just compelled. He's fully engaged. Like, where am I going to go? And after this one's done, move on on to the next one, right? Spent hours there. Probably no food and water because you're just there. Or, or Timothy, surveying the course of rapids. He, he intends to navigate with his kayak through with exhilaration. It's inviting. He can't wait till the next time the opportunity comes to do so. Or, or perhaps it's, it's just the simplicity of being at his banks with your feet refreshed in the water, quietly taking in the, the sounds, you know, and, and the sights and the smells, just 
as all the sensations of your powers of sensory permit you to do. You know, even completing it with your favorite beverage and food, just what a space, right? Enjoying that, it's inviting. Bottom line, it's inviting. You are compelled to be there. It's a place you want to be. I noticed this while driving along Sayada River. The North Umpqua River, along the Diamond Lake Highway, and similarly the Smith River, Smith River, they come to mind, and they're almost dangerous for me to drive alongside because I, I look more at them than the road itself. At least my wife would say I do. But who can resist, right? It's beautiful. Around every corner as I'm turning, you, know, you see a spot like, I want to check that out. I want to, ooh, there's another spot. I want to hang there for some time. I mean, it's so inviting. It's so inviting. And so it is with justice and righteousness before God's eyes. So it is with justice and righteousness before God's eyes. The God of all creation is in your midst in a life-giving, peace-surrounding way when justice and righteousness are your practice. When the rhythm of your life flows to this cadence, God is delighted to be present with his blessing upon it. And when we are not there, Repentance returns him there. Seeking to live a life pleasing to the Lord is one who seeks every day to have righteousness and justice operating together as a result of receiving nourishment and renewal of your mind from the word of God put into effect in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how that cadence flows. The Lord takes pleasure in this, in every expression of it that your life brings. One last thing is required, though. One last thing is required, however, for God to be pleased. And our closing three verses provide that answer. The answer of knowing what is required to please him. Now remember, this is, this is God speaking here through Amos, verses 25 through 27. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sakoth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So what is God saying here? What is he saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, you guys are acting like I don't exist. You're acting like I don't exist. You are naming these stars in the heavens, which I made, mind you. I name them. I call them by name. I have them numbered, but you're naming them and making them gods for yourselves. 
I mean, who, who was it? Who was it who provided for you in the wilderness those 40 years when you had nothing? I repeat, nothing. Your clothing, your shoes, food, water, warmth at night, shelter from the sun during the day, protection from your enemies, guidance through the wilderness. You guys had nothing and therefore nothing to bring to me. No sacrifices, no offerings, all those 40 years. I provided everything for you and you are behaving as if I don't exist. And as, I, and as if I don't reward those who seek me. Church, what he's saying is you have no faith. You have no faith. This is what he's saying there. You have no faith and it is impossible to please me without faith. Hebrews eleven six. For whoever would draw near to God must, yes, that says must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You are not doing this, God is saying. You are behaving like I don't exist and you are not seeking me. You are all caught up in idolatry, picking out stars in the skies and giving them names and calling them your gods. You cannot be wrapped up in idolatry and be seeking the Lord at the same time. You can't. Same with us, saints. Same with us. And so God says, I will send you off into exile with your false gods. You can have them. Take them with you. They certainly can't take you with them, right? Being that they don't exist, that they're not real. You take them. Church, they, they had no faith. All their show in their worship services, as convincing as it was to themselves and even the onlooker, it was not mixed with faith. It was fake. God hates, God despises fake faith. What is real faith? Real faith is witnessing one's witnessing one whose house is ablaze with fire. And then through shock and tears and sorrow, witness them in the midst of all that have a rock solid joy expressed in prayer and in presence. Because their hope in God's steadfast love remains unshaken. That's powerful. That stands in sheer contrast to superficial religion. That pleases God. That is faith. The genuine article thereof. Nothing done without faith pleases God but rather anything done in faith. Any and every act of faith is pleasing. And it is by it that we, like the saints of old, received or receive our commendation from God, our reward, our inheritance kept in heaven for us. The outcome of our faith 
is the salvation of our souls. My righteous, God says, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Be not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hear and heed the exhortation in Hebrews 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Our confidence being to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new living way that he opened through us. Excuse me. That he opened through, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, having such a, high, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, not going on sinning deliberately, but rather upholding justice and righteousness in our lives while bearing fruit in keeping with repentance when we fail to do so, that we may indeed, in all of our efforts, live a life pleasing to the Lord. Seek to do so alongside me. Would you please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do with the faith that you supply, God, hope in your steadfast love. We know you are good. The cross heralds that with a deafening sound. There is no denying. And it was such a great cost. And we do lament sin. Just the, the destruction it brings. Whether it be the, the pain, the hurt that lies, lies would bring between loved ones, between friends and family. Whether it be sickness or calamities. Just the effects of sin, God. It is what we lament. The effects of sin in our own lives, being prone to wander, being not fervent in spirit, not seeking you as we ought. We lament this, God. And we rejoice in our Savior. We rejoice in the justice that we are assured of in Christ, that every sin is paid for, that the judge of the earth will rise up and will judge, and that we can have full assurance of faith that we are protected, we are guarded from judgment because it was received upon 
Jesus in our place. But Father, if there is an attitude present, if there is any existing space where we are thinking we are right with you, we are in good standing, yet we are living in unrepentant sin, practicing sin that we know is wrong. If that exists here, I ask Holy Spirit that you would, you would reveal that, you would press upon the heart, press upon me. We can be blind just as easily as these Israelites we read about in the book of Amos. But in your grace, for your name's sake and for our good, would you let that be known? Would you expose it? And help us, God. Help us reflect to your heart and help us live lives that uphold justice and righteousness. And help us practice repentance. May that be a a prayer daily, one that's just threaded in every um, part of our day that we are asking for a penitent heart, a soft heart before you. I need that, God. I know how hardened, how easily hardened I can be, how blind I can be, how wayward. Help by giving us that tender heart that grieves sin or even the, the, the temptation to sin is grieved by it. Would you grant that to your, to your church? And that we would quickly repent. God, we want, our aim is to live lives pleasing to you. And that is our endeavor. That is what we seek. Not to earn the favor, the love that you've lavished upon us. That is a gift, but we certainly can live lives that are pleasing to you. And for our good, those line up. There's no greater joy than knowing that we are in stride with the spirit, that we are walking in accordance to your will. Help us, help, help us help one another through the relationships as we just encourage one another, as we, if need be, rebuke one another, as if, or even just love covers a multitude of sin. Perhaps that is a part of it, God. It all all those, all your instruction in how we as Christians, how we operate as a church family. Work through us. You work through us. May we experience that and bear witness to it and keep our eyes on Jesus who is the object of our faith. Lord God, we believe you exist. We believe you reward those who seek you diligently. With our eyes of faith on Jesus, our champion, our example, our Lord, God, and King, may he be in focus and everything else grow strangely dim. We thank you, God, for your word. 
We thank you for your, your care and your love for your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.